0: everybody. I'm Karen Hartglass. You're listening to It's All About Food. I'm so glad you're joining me. We're going to veer a little differently today. This show is called It's All About Food. And you're going to find out that this program is connected a little bit to food, but we're going to be talking about sleep. And I'm very excited to bring on the author of a new book, Sleepless. Annabelle Abstreets is a writer of highly researched, award-winning fiction, as well as both narrative and practical nonfiction. Her nonfiction includes Windswept, Walking the Paths of Trailblazing Women, 52 Ways to Walk, and The Age Well Project. Abstreets also wrote the novels The Joyce Girl, the story of James Joyce's daughter, Lucia, and Miss Eliza's English Kitchen, an international bestseller optioned by CBS Studios. Her work has been translated into more than 30 languages. She lives in London and Sussex with her family. Annabelle Street, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Karen.
0: I was very surprised reading this book. When your PR person reached out about your book, I had no idea what it was about other than sleep. And I'm all about healthy living, healthy diet. And many people now are talking not only about diet, but lifestyle and how sleep is so important. And I know many people close to me who have trouble sleeping. So I thought, yeah, I want to read this book. And I loved it. And it was not at all what I expected. And there were so many things that resonated with me. I made a lot of notes. We'll see what we can get to. One of the first things that I loved about it is you're a writer, you're an artist, obviously, and you lost your father. And this book came out of grieving to some extent. And that's the beautiful thing about art is taking something that's difficult and making something beautiful and useful.
1: Yes, yes. I hope hope so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, definitely.
1: I hope it's useful.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so I'm sorry for your loss. I know your father died in 2020. And nobody gets out of this world alive. That's what my father used to say.
1: It's Mm, something we
0: can't ever plan for. But we do the best we can, because this is part of being a a human being on planet Earth. So before we jump into the full book, I kind of want to go to the end just for a moment, because there was a mention about food. (laughs) So I wanted to start... Just connecting the dots a little bit. There are times I don't talk about food on this show because it's my show. I can talk about whatever I want, but (laughs) there are many things that we can imagine as food that aren't necessarily the food that we digest. It was page 417. I'm going to read it. You wrote, Anthropologist Richard Wrangham believes that the discovery of fire turned us from primate to homo sapiens because fire gave us digestible cooked food, enabling us to spend less time chewing and giving us the biological resources to reshape our bodies and brains. But he also argues that cooking over fire marked the beginning of patriarchy. Cooked food was so valuable that women became cooking chattels in need of protectors to ensure their food wasn't stolen by other men. And yes, Wrangham says, it was always men. 200,000 years ago, the campfire provided light, warmth, and quick-to-eat cooked food, but it also made women vulnerable. It's smoke and cooking smells, alerting men to the possibility and location of food available to be pilfered. Only by surrounding herself with others or by having a strong male protector could women stay safe. You remember writing that paragraph?
1: I do indeed. I do indeed. But, but his, his whole book completely struck me because I'd never thought of our uh, female vulnerability at Niger. I'd always thought that We were more frightened of being, you know, bodily attacked and and raped. But actually what he was saying is it was all about the food. Men came to take the food that we had prepared for our families uh, and they weren't interested. They weren't interested in our bodies. They just wanted our food. And that sort of blew my mind, really.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Feed me. Well, it's not just patriarchy. Unfortunately, the whole hierarchy came out of that too so we have the whole pyramid of men over women and humans over animals and white over black or different ethnicities over others and it's not good
1: no but it's quite extraordinary isn't it to think that something so simple (laughs) and yeah cooked it was about cooking yeah the heating up of the meat that made it easy to digest so that you could eat it literally on the run was sort of suddenly became fast food. Uh, and look at all the change that that triggered. Quite
0: extraordinary. Quite extraordinary. And that's why I say it's all about food. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. So, I mean, I was enjoying the entire book and it's a long book. So when I got to page 417 and I thought, oh, it is <laughs> all about food. Okay, but it is about a lot of other things. So let's jump into sleepless. You focus on a number of things, and one is the night self. Could you talk briefly about what the night self is and maybe how you discovered it?
1: Yeah, sure. So the night self is the version of ourself that I think anyone who's been awake in the sort of in the darkest hours of night, we'll be familiar with. Normally, we'd think of that self as you know the ruminating, uh, remorseful, regretful, guilt ridden version of ourselves, and we ponder over things and we go round and round in circles, and it's not a very pleasant experience. And that's definitely that is definitely an element of the night self. And um, I that had been my night self for a very long time because I hadn't really slept terribly well for about 25 years, I've had insomnia, sort of mild Mm. and manageable insomnia. But when I suffered from uh, this sort of series of bereavements, my father, my stepfather, and, uh, and the family pet, all in the space of six weeks during, it was during the first year of the pandemic. So we were all in isolation. And suddenly I was having to look after my two isolated, bereaved mothers. Who didn't talk to each other, which didn't help, <laughs> and all of the children. And there was there was actually another death that I, I missed out because it was sort of too tragic, really. Um, but my my daughter's friend took his own life. So, and that happened all in the same little period of time. So the whole family, we were deeply, deeply traumatized. And my sleep just went out of the window completely. It just, and at that stage, I knew I had two choices really. One was to go to my my doctor, my physician, and say, I need sleeping pills and the which I didn't want to do and the other was just to just to sort of treat it as a bit of a journey and and see where it was going to go and I hope that perhaps (laughs) perhaps sleep would return but in that process I discovered that I really needed the darkness and I'd always been a little bit frightened of the dark and I'd always fretted on my on my awake nights but suddenly that went away and the night became a uh sort of place of refuge and the darkness suddenly felt really healing a bit like Mm. coming in from the cold and having this just gorgeous blanket wrapped around you and it was a very strange experience and i hadn't had it before Uh, and i wondered if it was initially i wondered you know if it was part of the grieving you know this was something to do with my my grief wired brain um but then i started to uh reach out to scientists and, and read reports and because I, I realized that my brain was was um it, it was very different, but I also realized that once that ruminating, fretful voice is turned off, and because I was grieving, suddenly, you know, lying awake all night worrying about you know the little things, they seemed unimportant. So there was a new freedom to my way of thinking, which was prompted by grief, weirdly, mm-hmm. and perhaps a little bit oddly. Um, But small things suddenly seemed unimportant and there were much bigger things I had to find at night. I had to find, you know, I had to find all these dead people, Uh, you know, I had to sort of try and understand what had happened and and where they were. Uh, And, you know, I'm not I'm not I don't have a faith. I'm not religious as such. So I didn't have an easy answer. I didn't I couldn't say, oh, they're in heaven, you know, because that just didn't make any sense to me. So the night became initially a time of sort of spiritual exploration And I found that at night, uh, because of this sort of funny working of the brain, which I'll I'll explain, uh, things that seemed unacceptable to me during the day seemed completely acceptable and made perfect sense. Uh, So that was sort of the first, the first, I think the first little epiphany really was that actually I could find some answers Mm. and some joy, you know, alone at night in the dark. And that was an absolute novelty. In
0: society we're made to feel like we have to fit in. And there's a routine, a schedule, and we're supposed to go to bed at a certain hour and get eight hours of sleep and get up. And there's so many reports about how we're not doing that and how we can measure our sleep. And I think a lot of people are getting more stressful thinking, oh, I'm not just sleeping the way I'm supposed to. And that adds to everything that we don't need. And Some of what your book did was explaining, not just with science, but with your own observations, what sleep is about and what can happen at night and how there are many different ways that we can sleep, we can get up in the middle, and that it's all okay, and that it's all natural. So first accepting that is is tremendous.
1: Yes, yes, I think we have become very disconnected from night and from the way our ancestors experienced darkness and and the night, and they didn't sleep, or it's now thought that they didn't sleep in the way that we are really being encouraged to sleep, which mm-hmm. is you know you should go to sleep, you are know, preferably between ten and eleven, and you should have your seven to eight hours straight through. No one actually slept like that. So again, I was quite surprised to find that that wasn't the normal way of sleeping. And in many ways, we're sleeping much better now than I think our ancestors ever slept. But that isn't the message coming out of the $100 billion sleep industry, an industry that's now so big. Also, I think we have to question some of the studies and the headlines that are sort of appearing in front of us. Because again, my research showed that a lot of these these headlines are a little bit scaremongering. So there's a lot of data showing that it's perfectly all right not to have eight hours sleep and in fact many many people lived to wonderful old ages Mm -hmm. uh, as healthy as anything sleeping on far less than that it's perfectly all right to have broken fragmented sleep that's probably how our ancestors slept and in fact i spoke to several anthropologists um including a guy who lived in the amazon with a, a community of indigenous people he lived with them for i think about 12 years and you know, he he told me how horrified they were when they heard about how we all sleep, you know, alone, alone in our little beds, you know, at a set time. And they all sleep, you know, they sleep communally. Mm. He said every time he slept on the, around the fire uh, under the tent with them. And he said that whenever he woke up, you know, surfaced at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. or 4 a.m., whatever time it was, he said there were always a group of people, always, always, not the same ones, but always a group of people who were awake and by the fire, And having a cup of tea or having a having a smoke and just he said just like they they used to talk in these very low, soft voices, just chatting. And he said that was sort of the background noise. So you always had this sense of safety. Uh, But he, he also said that people did not sleep all through the night. So some of these facts I found really reassuring because they 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 encouraged me, I think, to to sort of push on with my various uh, journey, my various aspects of the journey, because suddenly I thought there's nothing to be frightened of. I'm not going to get uh, dementia tomorrow. I'm <laughs> not going to end up with type two diabetes and obesity and have a heart attack because I haven't you know, missed a few nights of sleep. So that was all quite reassuring.
0: It sounds lovely, actually, to wake up when you're relaxed, and there's that calming darkness if you're not afraid of it and you have other people around you you have a little tea talk and there's there's not that same pressure of the day to get things done and and then you can go back and get a little more sleep i like it
1: yeah yeah i think it's um i think there's a lot to be said for it but it's it's definitely not encouraged
0: at the moment mm I just read an article yesterday and it really frustrated me because a while back I had read that the best way to sleep is on your back. And so I trained myself to sleep on my back. And now I'm reading, no, you want to sleep on your right side. (laughs) And I know when I sleep well and that I'm going to sleep the way I know works for me. I
1: think that's such a good point, Karen. I'm just going to come in on that point because I think the other thing that frustrates me at the moment is that. You know, I have so many friends who are now just sleeping with these sleep trackers. Oh, and yeah, they, for... they, Every time you use a tracker, any sort of tracker, you, you I think you stop learning to listen to your body. So you wake up and you look at the tracker. The trackers aren't correct. I think a lot of them are. are it's, what's the average? Something like 50 percent accuracy. So it's pretty low. So people are now waking up and instead of listening to their body and thinking, I feel great or. Actually, maybe I need to go back to sleep, or maybe I should try and get a nap this afternoon. They're just looking at the tracker, and um, apparently in the UK, the doctors doctors are getting very frustrated because they've got the, these what they call the worried well, who are all turning up perfectly healthy people who are all turning up at the, <laughs> the surgery, saying, um, "My sleep tracker says I'm not getting enough deep sleep, or I'm not getting enough REM sleep." <laughs> so I think you know, I think it's just gone a bit too far. And we need, yeah. to, we need to go back to
0: listen to what our body's telling us. Unplug. So I want to get into some of the things that I really enjoyed about the book and why I would encourage people to read it. And that's the enchanting part, the magical part, the mystery part, the spiritual part. I really enjoyed all of that. So let's touch on some of that. You were... You talk about birds and birds coming to our rescue and different times you sighted birds and how you thought maybe this eagle or when you saw an eagle, it might be your father. And I, I love that. I believe in that, whatever that means. I, I wanted to share an experience I had because you talk about, the nighttime and you've had many, you have many different experiences in the book and you actually go out and sleep at night outside. And I remembered, I realized, oh, I've done that. So I bought property in Costa Rica about 20 years ago and I used to camp in the jungle by myself and it was a remarkable experience. There were two things that I noticed. One is there was this soundtrack all night long and the channels changed over time and the sounds were incredible, all the life and activity that happened at night. And the second thing was, I wasn't afraid of that. I was afraid of man. Yeah. <laughs> and those those things came out in your book. Yeah,
1: it's, it's um, gosh, I don't know what that says, that we're we're more afraid of our own kind than anything <laughs> else. <laughs> but the magic of sleep, sleeping outside actually was a complete revelation to me. It was the most, one of the most extraordinary experiences I've ever had. And such a simple thing, you know, I literally just took this mattress out of my window. <laughs> and there I was having this sort of, uh, I guess, um very powerful semi-mystical experience just from looking at the stars. Mm-hmm. And from experiencing that other world, because I think, as you, as you sort of indicate, the world at night is very thin. You know what I mean? By very thin. You feel as though you could just put your hand straight through and be in another world. I don't think you get that generally during the day, but at night it's there all the time. Um, so um I was also very surprised when I when I was doing all the research to find that this was quite normal in the past. Many, many, many women slept outside, they all absolutely loved it. <laughs> it, wasn't, yeah, it wasn't given really for a woman to sleep outside then just as it isn't given now, um, but it felt a, a real privilege. And, and all these things, as you say, I became aware of nocturnally migrating birds. I had no idea that huge flocks of birds migrate at night I thought that was a daytime thing. Yeah, they, they take the red-eye you know,
0: flight, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, and it was just, it was silent. So they're not making any noise. You just hear the beating of the wings and it's its absolutely beautiful. So all the noises, all the sounds are completely different, which I think, again, most people probably never hear them. The smells are different. So mm. our sense of smell is more acute at night. Um, sounds also travel much further. So one of the things I noticed was I could hear things from much 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 further away and there's there's a, there's, there's a lot of physics behind that which I, I won't bore you with but uh all of that just meant you you do feel as though you've gone into another world the other thing I found was that I would fall asleep really easily really quickly so sometimes I'd take my mattress out there and i it would be quite early you know eight o'clock or something I think I'll just lie here for a couple of hours watch the stars and then I'll go back go back into my bed but then I would just fall asleep it was incredibly restful and soporific but the, th- the the sleep you have is very, I think I call it lacy in the book. So you feel as though you're rising and falling. So you come up out of the sleep quite a lot because there's all these mm-hmm. things happening and little sounds and and then right. you just look at the stars and then I'll just drift back. It was a, the sleep was very different from indoor sleep, mm-hmm. and that really surprised me too. You probably found that as well when yeah. you were in the jungle
0: i've tried it also on my terrace in new york city it's not the same no (laughs) because the the life never the human life never stops and there's too many lights
1: it's just too bright it's too noisy and it's too bright and it's the wrong sort of light it's it's you know artificial sky glow
0: (laughs) i would say don't do that at home Unless you have a home, like, well, you have a place in London and a place in Sussex, and the Sussex place is a little more countryfied, so that's where you were sleeping outside.
1: It's actually on the edge of a dark sky reserve.
0: Yeah, nice. why I could see
1: stars. You know, I was just, I'm just so, so lucky I'm aware of that every time. But I would say, you know, if anyone wants to, just go to one of these dark sky reserves and somehow, you know, camp, but, you know, get out of your tent and just lie there because it's it's uh, it's just, it's sort of a little miracle. And it's mm-hmm. the thing, is it's there every night. <laughs> every night it's well, there.
0: That's
1: right. <laughs> it's, it's a free show like, every night. It's a free show every night. And the stars change, the constellations change according to the season, the phases of the moon change. So every time you wake up, you know, the moon's in a different place. And, you know, the constellations are in different places. So there's always something to look at.
0: <laughs> in the beginning of the book, you were talking about, primarily women who had uh, insomnia and sleep problems. And I was thinking, oh, I know a lot of men that have sleep problems too. And, you know, why is she focusing on women? But then, then I got it and I really appreciate it. So throughout the book, you're mentioning many women, writers, artists, women of note, some of them we've heard of, and some of them many of us haven't. And their important contribution scientists as well. Mm. And, how darkness, the nighttime was their freedom, was the time when they were able to be themselves. And that was uh, amazing to read about it and realize that. So thank you for bringing that out, but also what we go through as women in society (laughs) and how artists especially have to express themselves and find a way. Sometimes it's just by not sleeping that's when yeah. you
1: can be you yes well I think I think at night obviously a lot of the, the usual daytime sort of stuff falls away so you do get this opportunity to to um, just do what you want to do and because people are often asleep around you which actually is a brilliant thing because it means you don't think oh I'll go and unstack the dishwasher or I'll do a bit of prepping and cooking for tomorrow you don't you really don't want to make any noise because you really do not want to wake anyone up so that sort of nudges us I think into doing things that lend themselves to to the quiet and that does really mean that um it's you know it's writing it's drawing it's stargazing it's thinking it's praying it's meditating it's it's all of those sorts of things as opposed to, you know a lot of the household stuff that otherwise I suspect a lot of women would have probably thought, oh well, you know, I'll get ahead on the ironing, but those <laughs> things, actually, ironing is a little bit quieter. But often a lot of the household things, particularly in the past, they were noisy. Yeah, you, know, you were clanking metal buckets around and whatever, so it was often a, a really good place to to do something that was quiet. And and then of course you were a little bit restricted, which is also a good thing.
0: All the experts are telling us to turn off our televisions and our screens and our phones a few hours before we go to sleep, because it really messes up the brain in terms of melatonin production. And for people that are having problems sleeping, this is what they should do. I know many people don't, because if you're having trouble sleeping, what do you do? You go to your phone or you watch some new series or something and you keep going until you can't. But I love, there's just something beautiful and romantic about waking up and lighting your little candle, and drawing, or writing, reflecting, without electricity.
1: Yeah, but actually, I really like all of those. um, (laughs) Of of course, we all
0: do.
1: (laughs) But the instructions to not turn on screens, and not turn on overhead lights, I think is also really, I think it's important. But I also Mm -hmm. think it's really good, because I think a lot of people now, when they wake up, might might think twice about you're going straight to the laptop hopefully um <laughs> because again that's another thing like stacking the dishwasher but if that's if that's shut down to you i mean the more of these things that are sort of shut down to us the more we go within ourselves and the more then we are likely to do something a little bit creative rather than oh I'll watch some netflix at night because you're right it's very tempting when you're awake or mm-hmm. you think scroll But actually that these endless, these endless instructions, you know, do not, do not (laughs) look at your laptop. Do not have blue light. I found really helpful because they stopped me. They stopped me from doing that and forced me really to do things that actually were much more meaningful and much more satisfying. uh, And things that really used the the rewired, the sort of the rewired brain. So one of the things I talk about quite a lot in the book is, is how the brain rewires for nocturne. And if you're just watching Netflix, your rewired brain, is it's it's not really getting a chance to play. Um, and I think I, mean, I would really urge people who are awake at night to try and explore a bit of their, their mind, because it is so different from the day mind. Uh, and again, a lot of the very, very new circadian science sort of um, backs this up, really, by showing suddenly that the bits of the brain we use during the day, they are going into into partial hibernation at night, they are sleeping and sort mm. of resting and restoring. So other parts of the brain that we don't use so much. And I think a lot of these parts of the brain are slightly more, I would use the word spiritual, but there's certainly more open-minded <laughs> because the bit that goes to sleep is that, you know, that logical, orderly, methodical, rational, curtailing of emotions bit of the brain. So when that when that's out of the way, and again that bit of the brain is is bigger and more active in women which is why i sort of partly focused on women when that bit shuts down you know the the inner critic that inner critic we have telling us what we can and can't do is gone that all that sort of judgmental self assessing self evaluation is much quieter often it's just gone asleep <laughs> things that seem impossible during the day like all of the all of the birds that kept coming to us it was unbelievable that during the day <laughs> Me and my husband would just say, oh, it's surely, it's just, you know, it's just coincidence. But part of me would think, oh, really? Maybe. But at night, at night, the part of me that was thinking really was like, oh yeah, that's not coincidence. You wake up. Well, I was awake, obviously, but you know, <laughs> as in, of course it's not coincidence. How could you think that? So, so the day, so, so during the day, um, you're obviously, you're obviously a bit wiser than I am, but during the day, I was certainly much more data driven, you know, and, Everything had to make sense and be rational. And at night, I really liked being less rational and less certain. I loved the uncertainty and the fact that there was no one making, you know, the part of my brain that liked certainty was, was asleep. So I could sort of revel in uncertainty, which is something that a mystery, which is something that probably we all need
0: to do more of some of your descriptions and even the scientific explanations of what's happening made me want to stay up more and and stay in the dark and because it just sounded like this delicious magical space where you could be so creative and open-minded but we do need to sleep right (laughs) we do
1: we definitely definitely need to sleep and you know, that there is I still maintain that there is nothing really better than a, a good night's sleep. <laughs> but the second best thing, if you can't get that, is to hang out with your night self as opposed to fretting and becoming anxious or just, uh, you know, putting putting in something into your ears to try and to blot out your own your own ruminating voice. So I think um, I think what I found was that I would often produce things that were quite different to the things I produced during the day. And I found this when I was looking at all the artists that the work they did at night, for example, Lee Krasner and her paintings that she spent three years doing paintings at night, they were so completely, utterly different from the paintings she produced during the day. And this this pattern I sort of spotted it repeatedly, and then of mm. course I started to do it myself, and now I see it in my own in my own uh, feeble efforts. But they're just it's just you know different different things being looked at in, through a different lens um but you're right we do need to sleep so the i think the ideal perhaps is just to have the the odd night the odd night like that uh preferably where you don't have to get up and be a long distance lorry driver the next day or um or something i'm quite lucky that i work from home so mm-hmm. if i've been up half the night the next day i can quite often you know after lunch go and have a little nap or 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 I can just push on, but I don't have to worry that I'm about to operate on someone or that I've got to go. Exactly. (laughs) I can just sort of lounge around. So I think definitely you have to look at what your, uh, you know, what your subsequent day is looking like and whether you can accommodate, (laughs) accommodate any hanging out with your night self.
0: Right. Well, maybe just the idea that it's okay. Knowing it's okay, and maybe to revel in it a little bit, like, yeah, I know I have to get up in the morning, I have things to do, but here I am, I can't sleep, so where can I go with this? What can I discover? And and have a little bit of that, uh, what did you call it, wakeful rest, or something like that.
1: Wakeful rest, yeah. Yeah. But the other thing I found was that if I'd had a night, when I had nights like that, I didn't feel, I often didn't feel tired the next day mm. whereas when I had nights where I was uh stressing and getting cross getting cross because I couldn't sleep yeah. getting anxious about the next day anxious that I wouldn't be able to you know talk properly on a podcast or give a talk uh, when I had anxious nights the next morning I would wake up tired of course when I had nights where I was looking at the stars and I perhaps I've written a few lyrics or a couple of poems uh, I would first of all I would often go back to sleep no problem and secondly, if I didn't go back to sleep, I didn't feel tired the next day. So some people have asked, you know, who, who don't quite understand it. I've compared it to, you know, those nights when you go to a really good party. The party's fantastic. And you get home late and you don't get much sleep because you're a little bit wired. But the next morning, you might feel slightly weary, but you're not bone tired. You're still a little bit sort of a mm. little bit buzzing, aren't you? But you uh-huh. on a high. So my days were often like that after my good nights of swimming and hiking and stargazing. I just to, They just seemed to generate their own energy, which you know, pushed me through the next day without any signs of obvious fatigue. It was really strange. I still don't quite understand it, but that was my experience.
0: So you were very courageous in this book, talking about, writing about facing your fears of the night and darkness and you went to some extremes <laughs> to get to know that a little better you um would swim in at night and walk along a coast somewhere yes and, yes and you even took a cruise to the arctic
1: yeah yeah i wanted to i think i wanted to see what it was like to be in you know near 24 hour darkness you know, what was it what was it like for the people there because so I went in the yeah you know, in winter, the shortest the, sh- where the where the days were very, very short. So there were yeah, you know, maybe two, three hours of light. And the sun never rose. The sun never rose above the horizon. Oh no, you
0: went you went north, right? You went I, close. Yes,
1: I went to the Arctic Circle, yeah. The mm-hmm. Arctic Circle, yeah, the other end. <laughs> uh and um it was interesting because people there have a different approach to the darkness. Uh, they do use rather a lot of light. <laughs> I couldn't believe how much light there was. But they also have adapted, I think, to live with these long days of darkness. And they all sort of hibernate a bit. They all sort of go into a sort of hibernation mode. But the other thing I noticed was that they all go out, because they have to, they all go out walking in the dark, climbing mountains in the dark. They sort of they, they mm. treat the day, the dark day, just a little bit like the light day. But they do seem to be more, um, more. Um, I'm not sure what the word is, but they're more uh, sort of like a, they were like hibernating bears that would sort of venture out. <laughs> I mean that in a nice way but they they embraced it and they sort of accommodated it into their lives whereas here in the UK we do, literally we spend three months moaning moaning and complaining and refusing to go out because it's dark at four o'clock so we can't possibly go out uh, and their their approach was quite uh, refreshing but in terms of the other things I did the you know swimming and the walking I you know if, if you feel safe doing it I would I would say, and in the country, I, I didn't like it in the city. I tried it in London and I just hated it. Yeah. But for anyone that feels safe and has a safe place where they can walk, even if it's the garden, it's such an extraordinary time. And, you know, in the summer flowers, the flowers smell different. So there are flowers mm. that only release their perfumes at night. So mm. we're not aware of those if we're sleeping. There are all the insects that come out, oh, the glowworms, the owls. I mean, it was just, just absolutely extraordinary. So I do recommend that. Um, I also, I used to find that if I went out for a walk, I would come back and I'd get into my bed and I would just go straight straight back to sleep. So it was perfectly normal thing to do. <laughs> so whatever it was that had woken me, whatever was sort of, um, you know, had whirling in my mind, had sort of been, I'd sort of shed it on the walk. I would sort of exercised it in a
0: way, mm. purged it. You talked a bit about Singapore and how much light is in that city. And there's not much difference between day and night because it's all lit up, and the impact it has on the population.
1: Yeah, it's so bright, so it's um, I've got high rates of breast cancer. Breast cancer is the one of the most uh, clearly associated illnesses that comes with light pollution. So there are there are you can see these maps, um, some of the. Uh biologist showed me maps and literally you can see the rates of cancer breast cancer and they're in the really bright areas mm. so there's something or they think they think now that it's the light suppressing the melatonin and it's the melatonin has the antioxidant qualities necessary to to fend off breast cancer so they think it's a, a, a prostate cancer too but mainly breast cancer but the other thing that struck me in Singapore was that it, women felt really safe with all that light. So I was in a real conundrum mm-hmm. of this. Right there, there I was really saying, we've got to go back to the darkness. We've got to learn to live in the dark. But in Singapore, in fact, the first thing I got, I came out of the airport and got into a taxi. And the first thing a taxi driver said to me was, he said, you are, you will be completely safe here. And I said, oh, really? He said, yes, you could go out for a walk at 3am and you'll be completely safe. Huh. And so I spoke to I spoke to women and they all said, yes. They just didn't feel the fear that you would have in New York city that I have in London. Uh, And, but what, you know, was that the light or was it thousands of cameras that they have or, you know, I don't know what it was, but they seem to think that it's because it's so well lit. Mm. Um, You know, so so that was a real conflict in my mind, which I still haven't resolved.
0: (laughs) Well, as women, we need to find a way to take back the streets and it, Turning on the light is not necessarily the right answer.
1: No, no, <laughs> it sort of saddens me that that seems to be that seems to be the obvious, easiest answer. It's just to blitz the place with light to make us feel safe. But look at the cost. What what price do we all pay for that? What price for the wildlife? Yeah, there's it, got to be another way.
0: Mm-hmm. You bring up melatonin, which. The science behind that is really fascinating and what we're discovering about people and their lifestyles and their circadian rhythm and whether they produce melatonin at the right time or not. I know a lot of people are taking melatonin now and I read about a lot of experts about health and lifestyle and some of them just drive me insane. You know, they're just like, take the melatonin, whether you need it or not, you need it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yes. I think a lot of children are being given melatonin and we, we just don't know what the fallout of that will be. Right.
0: It's a <laughs> hormone and, and we don't want to playing with hormones. is It's not the right game. No. Yeah. We don't know enough about them. No. Yeah. I know uh, I had advanced ovarian cancer 17 years ago and I took a number of different routes to heal. I'm here. I'm thriving. Everything's great. Um. But some of the alternative pr- practitioners were recommending all kinds of supplements. And I took a lot, including a lot of melatonin. I took like seven times the normal dose. And I remember it it affected my sleeping and my dreaming. It was there was crazy stuff going on in there. So, you know, we really have to be careful with what we put in our brains, because it, it's a whole laboratory in there to begin with. And upsetting yeah. the balance has yeah. different effects.
1: Yes, yes. And of course, everyone is so very different. That's the and other thing that, that we're starting to realize, isn't it? That, you know, we're all different. Some of us need more sleep, some less, some produce melatonin at 8pm, some produce it at 12pm. We're all on slightly different sort of chronobiological clocks. So there's the, the, you know, the hard and fast rule, you go to bed at 11 and you have your seven hours just doesn't work for you know the, the population. It, it probably works for A chunk of it but not certainly not for the rest and and one of the things I've discovered is that this idea of the biphasic sleep sleeping in two chunks which I think is probably my natural way of sleeping Mm -hmm. uh, although it's called insomnia I think there are probably a lot of people who still sleep in that way and it was only uh well 300 years ago that Samuel Pepys the diarist who wrote these extraordinary long diaries, detailed his regular biphasic sleep. He called it sleep number one, first sleep and second sleep. And after his first sleep, he would often get up. He would go and visit a neighbor for a cup of tea. He would go (laughs) for a walk. He would do some of his bookkeeping, his business. And then he would go back to bed two or three hours later for his second sleep. And that was perfectly normal. Lots of people slept like that. Mm -hmm. Certainly when I was doing my research, I found a lot of women who were using that time to pray. Yeah, that was there was a lot of praying going on in England in the the middle ages and beyond really until the industrial revolution when capitalism really kicks in and suddenly everybody has to be at the mill they have to start Mm -hmm. at seven they've got to work all the way through daylight to get you know to get the most work out of them and then they've got to sleep well so that they can work really hard the next day and we're still that's still really how society operates (laughs) so it is desired that we are very productive during the day which means we must sleep in a certain way and in fact sleep really has been completely commoditized yeah and, uh, turned into something that's transactional and it,
0: it it shouldn't be like that i'm having all these silly ideas so i love any excuse to have a cup of tea and i drink all different kinds of tea black and green and white and herb and not, you know non-caffeinated But I just love the idea of sitting and having a cup of tea and just the idea of waking up in the middle of the night, having a cup of tea, maybe having a little chat, and then going back to sleep. It just sounds really lovely. And then I'm thinking, okay, maybe we can commodify that. We can have cafes open in the middle of the night (laughs) just for tea drinking and quiet conversation. (laughs)
1: It would be quite nice, though, wouldn't it, in some ways? You know, mm-hmm. quite often moments, because this was happening to me every single night, quite often moments where I thought, What well, wouldn't you like to wake up, you know, wake up my husband or wake up one of my children? Mm. And there were a few nights, actually, this was after the pandemic, when I would wake up at about two or three, and I had a daughter who was 18 and, and a, very, a very keen clubber. And so I would be coming downstairs having had my first sleep and she would appear, you know, through the door having been out clubbing. And that was really nice because we would just sit and have a have a little chat. But that didn't didn't always happen.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. So you went into this book grieving and writing. What did you get out of it?
1: Well, I certainly um got I got so many things it's hard to hard to quantify them more but I think I feel very grateful to my father peculiarly for um for sort of in a way gifting I'm obviously I'd rather he was alive but that couldn't be but for gifting me this whole experience that seemed to be propelled by by grief although now I'm aware of it uh you know anytime I wake up I can, I can, which is why I wrote the book, really, because I thought anyone, you don't have to be grieving. Lots of people wake up at night, and lots of people can mm-hmm. do these things. So, so first, first of all, I think all of the things I discovered the 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 strange wildlife, the plants, the birds, the stars. I went on an astronomy course and learned all about the stars. I bought a telescope. So it just opened so many doors into new worlds, and it also, I think, gave me a greater it gave me a place where i can be my very rational self can be a little bit more uh spiritual unquestioningly spiritual it's a you know night is is sacred it's there's something divine about it uh, that i would not have discovered if if i hadn't been grieving because the grief gave me gave me the the It gave gave me the idea that I didn't have to fret about little things. Otherwise, I think I'd still be lying awake fretting about little things. But so so, so it's sort of of, a funny chain of events, really, that has led to a new understanding of a new connection with the night, a new understanding of darkness, certainly a new understanding of how the brain is at night, which is really helpful. It's really, really helpful to know that when your brain, when you start, if you wake up in the night and you start feeling it, maybe you're feeling horribly guilty because you haven't spoken to your uh, very elderly uh, father-in-law for four months or
0: whatever
1: <laughs> at night that would suddenly you'd, you'd wake up and you'd be you'd be thinking god how could i be so cruel and mean but actually um the night the night once you can turn that off um and you realize that that's perhaps just uh ruminating once you can turn that off and find other other ways of thinking so now I know that instead of room, rumin- I know that the brain is, in- is wired to ruminate. I know that I can turn that voice off and I know that I can find another bit of my brain and use that to do something creative and imaginative and uh, reflective. And the other thing is that, yes, the days are different now because what you have found at night or what you've seen or what you've learned or what you've experienced, what you've felt at night, it does travel with you. It doesn't just shut down when your day brain wakes up. Mm-hmm. It does travel with you. And even though during the day, you might look back and think, gosh, that was a little strange. <laughs> it's still there. And come the night, you go back into that world. And it's and it's just as magical. And I think bit by bit, the, the day self does become slightly less <laughs> rational. maybe. <laughs>
0: at, at the beginning of when we started talking, you said that at night, I'm not exactly sure how you said it, but you wanted to communicate or get to know the ghosts or the people that had left and did you find that and how did you find it um
1: well i think that i i think we well, so we know that there are lots of people awake at night i think it's something like isn't it one in five americans is you know routinely awake during the night so when we wake up we feel really alone <laughs> Mm -hmm. that you're completely alone, but actually you're not, you know, 20% of the population is, is with you. Okay. They're in their their separate houses. And you should
0: all get a cup of tea.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think your idea of a a nighttime cafe is looking good. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I think that's also quite reassuring. I mean, I think that I wouldn't, yes, I sort of wouldn't want to be communicating with them directly because then that space, that space, which is all yours stops being all yours in a way yeah so it's also it's just nice to know that there are lots of people out there also awake uh, and and you know writing and painting and uh reading and maybe making music with their you know, headphones on uh, so there are a lot of and in fact, a lot of creative people do say they do their best work uh, at night and whether that's you know garden designers or musicians or composers or a lot of them
0: but did you gain a better understanding of the people that had died during uh, the night
1: i i think that's such a good question i think i'd say that i i i was able to come to terms with the loss more quickly and perhaps in a in a more therapeutic way uh, the vi, you know, the vi I talked somewhere in the book about the violence of sudden loss. Uh and and the night seemed to be a time when I could talk to them uh w- without it seeming odd. And I think mm-hmm. that just softened the um the the the, the violence of, of sudden loss. And I think I, so, so I've spoken to lots of people about losing losing people we love and there is a huge difference between uh they're not they're not you can't compare them one is neither worse nor better than the other but when you lose someone say through a slow process of uh cancer for example it's quite different to when someone unexpectedly drops dead yeah. and there's been just no forewarning of it so the the two the two approaches to losing someone are really different I mean, equally traumatic, but in such different ways. And I think for me, the the four deaths were so unexpected, so out of the blue that uh, I, I needed a place to go where I could communicate with them to h- help that process of acceptance.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That makes sense.
0: Yes, definitely. And the night time. When you're feeling most alone, I think, yeah, even if there are people around you, it's the opportunity to talk to those who have left, yeah, yeah, and and, and we feel when... like and 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 it seems like they hear us, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot
1: of mysterious a lot of mysterious things happen at night, but we don't we don't because it's night, we don't desperately try and make sense of them, we sort of accept them, they sort of come with the night. And I really liked the way that my brain was so much more open, was so much more open-minded at night. And I found this in a lot of the people I talk about in the book, that they also felt um just it's just like being also being wide open, as though as though you are um as though you are sort of a receiver. You're a receiver of things by night, if that is also makes sense.
0: I made a list. While I was reading of all the women that you've mentioned in the book, because some of them I wanted to go back to and and learn more about, I definitely want to read Christian Ritter's "A Woman in the Polar Night."
1: Oh, such a good book! I think I think you'd really like it.
0: I think so too. Extraordinary I, woman! And you said it's never been out of print.
1: No, never. She was an artist. She wrote that one book. Never another book. Mm-hmm. Um, and. It's yeah, it's never been out of print. it's It's really yeah. e- exceptional,
0: so I want to thank you for writing your book and for joining me today. I recommend people with sleep problems that this is a book to read. It might help you feel better and normal about what you're going through. And maybe we don't need to fit into all these things that society is making us believe we need to do. And thank you for that. Thank you for bringing the magic and the enchantment of the night self to waking up at night.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much for reading it and, and for and for understanding it and getting it.
0: Thank you. I I'll, I'll say it again. I really, really enjoyed it. And I was surprised because for this podcast, for example, I read a lot of dry stuff. <laughs> and this was great to read something that was full of stories, which everyone loves stories, but things that we could relate to and not even realize that we had experienced some of these things, at least I I did. And I'm glad that I got to remember some of my own experiences through yours. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for joining me, Annabelle Abstreet and best of luck with your book, Sleepless.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me on your show.
0: You're welcome. I wish you a lot of wonderful, restful sleep.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sleep well, I think that should be my sign off. Sleep well.
0: <laughs> All right. Sleep well. Very good. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. I love a good night's sleep. I think just about everyone does. But I also think As I mentioned in this podcast, we're giving a lot of stress about how we're supposed to sleep. And I learned quite a bit in the book, Sleepless, about all the different possibilities, the way we can approach a good night's sleep and how we can approach sleeplessness. And sometimes maybe all we just need is to get up in the middle of the night when we've woken up. And have a nice cup of tea. <laughs> I want to take a moment to talk about Steve Wise. Steve Wise unfortunately passed on February 15th and I had him on this program three times Stephen M. Wise was founder and president of the Non-Human Rights Project. You may remember him on this program or hearing about him in other places. I was really delighted to discover him when I read his book, The American Trilogy. It's a profound story about the pig industry In North Carolina. And he connects a lot of dots by going through history of a particular location, Tar Heel. And he talks about the decimation of aboriginal tribes by Christian settlers. And then talked about a plantation where African-American slaves once worked. And now we have the factory farm for pigs, the world's largest slaughterhouse And he wrote this book in 2009. And you may have seen a documentary or two or three or read reports. But unfortunately, this is still going on today where animal agriculture, growing pigs in this particular case, in CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations, they are housed in these giant warehouses And pigs are very sensitive to smell, and yet they are forced to live in their own excrement and urine, and then we cannot possibly treat all of that waste that comes out of these poor animals. So there are these giant lagoons, pink lakes of excrement, and the people that live around these have diseases, have illnesses. The air is so foul. And very often on these giant farms, corporate farms of growing pigs, they cannot keep up with all the waste. And so they spray it. There are times when the air is blowing just the right way and they spray this excrement and it goes past their own boundaries and onto other people's properties. This was really the first time I read about all of this and had it all come together. It's a profound story. It's still worth reading today. American Trilogy, Death, Slavery, and Dominion on the Banks of the Cape Fear River. And Steve has gone on to do... Just lots of wonderful work with a non-human rights project. And it's kind of hard to believe he's gone. If you have a moment, I've listed on this podcast page the three interviews that I had with him on this program. It's all about food, learn about his work, and learn about the ongoing work of the non-human rights project. And if you're up at night and you can't sleep, I recommend Annabelle Street's new book, Sleepless. Discover your night self. Thanks for joining me, everybody. I'm Karen Hartglass. You've been listening to another episode of It's All About Food. You can find me at responsibleeatingandliving.com. Send me any comments and questions to info at realmeals.org. Everybody get a good night's sleep and have a delicious week.